0: Hi there, world of podcast people. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Great Lakes Horror Company. Today I'm talking with Mitch Markowitz, a.k.a. the Super Hippie, and the head writer for the show, Hilarious House of Freightenstein, that came out in the 70s. Hey Mitch, how's it going?
1: It's going well, but you omitted one of my credits, the best credit of all. Oh, fill us in! My, bro- my brother and I produced the show, so I was the uh, officially known as the associate producer, but we 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 produced the show together. And that was my real job. The super hippie cameo I did was just that. It was a a small cameo I did in all 130-hour-long episodes.
0: And I saw something about um, the mosquito.
1: Yeah, that's what they tell me. Okay. (laughs) It was a a long time ago, and um, my my real memories are of the super hippie character. But they they do tell me that uh, I'm as citizen mosquito, too.
0: Okay, so how many episodes of House of Frankenstein were there?
1: 130.
0: And over what period of time were these recorded?
1: Uh, well, let me give you a slightly different answer to, I'll just re-couch the question. The entire production, the pre-production, the actual production, and the post-work was done inside a nine-month window, which, uh, we have been referred to as, as doing this in an astoundingly, incredibly short time relative to the fact that most bigger um, studios and or broadcasters would have, would have taken close to three years to produce that much product and edit it and do the post work and everything.
0: Which is what I was going to say is, in other words, known as, holy crap, that's a lot of done in a short period of time.
1: This must be a podcast. Yes. You, you couldn't say that on, on, uh, on something that the CRTC was governing.
0: Oh, heaven forbid. CRTC's <laughs> listening? Oh, geez, I better stop.
1: <laughs> no, I think we're good to say anything you want to say.
0: You want to let go any? You can let go any. Most of the time I'll usually self-edit myself out, but sometimes I'll let one slip.
1: <laughs> no, uh, I'll stick to um, all, all printable material.
0: Okay, that works too. So one of my favorite tidbits of information that I know as a uh, part of a trivia thing about the show was Vincent Price, and Mm -hmm. how almost every bit, he's in every single episode,
1: and he was... Numerous times, yeah.
0: Numerous times, and all of his stuff was recorded, like what, in the one weekend?
1: Well, um, no, there's misinformation about that, too. Well, what is bandied around by some people is that we did it in one day. Other people say we did it in two days. The truth of the matter is when we originally contacted Vincent and, and uh, offered him the the gig, as they say, in jail business, uh, we told him we would get him in and out of town in two days. That was one of the carrots that we thought would make him, not make him, but help to convince him to take on the assignment. The truth of the matter was it didn't end up being that way. It ended up taking about three and a half, almost four days to to do it. And the reason for that is um, the, the way this worked was Vincent Price. We brought him into Toronto first. That's where he flew into. We asked him if there was anything he'd like to do in Toronto while he visited. And uh, I guess "visited" isn't exactly the right choice of words, While he was here to work. And he said, no, the only thing he would like to do on this particular Visit to Toronto was he would like to visit the Mervish Gallery. I I don't know if your worldwide uh, listeners will know what that means or if it will mean anything to them, but we have a very, very famous retail emporium in Toronto called Honest Ed's. It's like the largest bargain house in in North America, maybe in the world. And his son, David Mervish, is a, is a uh, connoisseur of the arts and, and opened an art gallery around the corner from this huge bargain emporium, and it was called David Marvish Gallery. And it's pretty famous, actually. So um, we knew that it, we weren't going to be able to get, uh, get Vincent over to visit the gallery during sort of normal business hours, because he thought it was going to be a nine-to-five working schedule. We knew otherwise. So we got in touch with David Mervish and told him we had Vincent Price in town, and it's just somewhere he could make some sort of special concession, if you will, to get Vincent in after we finished work, which would probably, we knew, be closer to, to 2 in the morning by the time we, we shot and, and got back into Toronto. We shot the show in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes out of Toronto. And Davis, David just said, oh my God, Vincent Price, are you kidding? Vincent Price, I'd meet you in 2 in the morning and stay there till 6 in the morning with him. Anyway, we, we made the arrangements. We, we took Vincent over to David's, and he toured it and loved it, and, and that was that. When we actually got on the set, if you'll recall, the, on the show, it, it appeared that Vincent was standing on, on a balcony. Now, of course, it was just a set, it wasn't a real balcony. And the plan was, I was lying on the ground right beneath that balcony, out, out of the shot, of course and I was handing him up whatever prop or props I thought were appropriate for that particular bit. So we got about 15 minutes into shooting, and my brother, uh, who was directing the show as well as everything else, was in, a, uh, in the director's booth. Now, CHCH at that point didn't have a real, um, a real um, editing – not editing, sorry – but a real booth, what they were, he was working out of a, a school bus, that's where the equipment was, in the parking lot. So at one point, about 15 minutes into the shoot, he got on the PA system and, and said, Mitch, Vincent, we have to have a meeting. came running out of the bus and into the, the parking lot and into the studio. We had a little huddle, and he looked Vincent in the eye and said, Vincent, you, you, you're just not scary. We hired you to be scary. And Vincent looked him right back in the eye and said, listen, Riff, if you want scary, you have to write scary. The stuff you wrote in this on the song cue cards is cute. It all rhymes. It's interesting, but it's not scary, and I'm not a magician. So we put Vincent Price on hold. We came back to Toronto, got the two writers that we had assigned to write all of the Vincent Price bits to come out to the uh, to the house. We were living in a, a big state in the Tobacco, a suburb of, of Toronto, and that's where we did all the pre-production work. All the writers were in separate rooms there. And we told them what the story was, that they had to rewrite all 130 episodes of Frightenstein, all the price bits anyway, and that until that was done, they weren't going to get out. We were going to put them into a, a room, lock it up, and until that was done, there would be no toilet breaks, no food, no nothing. And we did that. Put them into a room, locked the door, and about 24 hours later, there was a huge bang on the door, and we opened the door and let them out. The first thing they did was run to the bathroom. next thing they did was consume about a zillion sandwiches we had prepared for them. And um, after reviewing the material, it was scary. And the rest is history. For 45 years now, people across Canada, the United States, and abroad have been enjoying Vincent Price reading the, uh, the, the new revised Material that that was written over a sort of twenty four hour period.
0: So I'm quietly giggling over here when you're saying all this because I'm thinking, if we tried to do that today, what kind of trouble would you be getting into?
1: Yeah, yeah, you couldn't do anything that we did then today. You, but you know, as an example, if I remember correctly, CH wasn't Union back then. Almost it was almost half a century ago. That's right. And um, the crew. Just like Vincent, thought they were gonna come in at nine and work till five and then pack up their lunch pail and go home. And of course that didn't work out that way either. We started doing makeup at about by the way, makeup's a whole different story, but I'll tell you in a minute. But we started to do makeup on Billy, uh Billy Van was the the real star of that show. Yeah. He played like
0: Hundreds amazing. of characters.
1: Yeah. Just went on and on and on. And I can tell you that story as well. Anyway, um we started putting makeup on Billy at around six in the morning. We started shooting around eight thirty or nine. And we were ready to stop shooting around seven thirty, eight o'clock. But Billy had an insatiable appetite for work. He was a workaholic. And at seven thirty or eight when we were ready to close it down for the day, Billy would say, No, man, let's do a little more. I got some more in me. Let's keep going, man. So we would go for another half hour and then he'd do it again, say, Let's keep going, man, I got some more in me. And it ended up we didn't finish till, generally speaking, sometime between eleven and twelve at night.
0: Nice. So, I mean, I I remember the show as a kid when I was uh, sorry. I don't know if I want to say I was a kid. Yeah, I'd say I was a kid. Um, I, there was only one scene that I can clearly remember without even trying to think about anything, and that was the count trying to make a uh, a machine to make donuts. <laughs> And then when I saw that episode again, or that clip again on YouTube uh, a few months ago, I was like, oh my God, they actually have that equipment already, but it was nowhere near like that back then. Yeah, and it was like, yeah. trippy.
1: A lot of people said we were ahead of our time with that show. Yeah, the the Count, unfortunately, had a, had a problem, and that, that's really the, re- the reason he was banished from his home country and uh, had to take up new digs. Um, uh, he couldn't do anything right, he couldn't make anything work the way it was supposed to work. As an example, when we did the opening of the show, we, we would raise the, the, the flag, uh, the Frankenstone flag, and he and Igor would salute the flag, and then he would immediately go and get a watering can, and he had a small garden on the set. And what you would think would happen is we'd take the watering can and water the flowers, and then they would all start to grow. What happened was the complete opposite. He would water the flowers, which were all standing erect at that point, and then they would go like that and wilt right over and die in front of him. He he also had uh, a monster, a Frankenstein-type monster, who was named Brucie, and he was laying on a slant board surrounded by electronic equipment and and various other uh, equipment. And the... Count and Igor's goal in life, their, their cause celeb, if you will, was to make Brucie live again. And albeit they tried at least one time in every hour-long episode, they failed. Unfortunately, they failed and failed and failed. They tied him up to electronic diodes. They, they tried special chemicals. They, they put, um, what do you call those pads you put on a person's chest to resuscitate them uh, anyway, pads on his on his chest. They 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 attached things to his forehead. They did everything they could, and unfortunately, Brucey never did come back to life. Now, I, I I spoke to somebody once who said he thought he saw in one episode for about two seconds that one of Brucey's eyes fluttered. <laughs> now that could have been this guy's imagination. I don't know. All I know is, as far as I know, Brucey never did come back to life.
0: Poor Bruce. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah.
1: So, Poor Count.
0: Huh? Poor, Poor Count, count. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't get his friend back. That's right. It's like, oh, well. But that's that's the way things roll, right? That just
1: happens. I, I guess. That's the way they rolled on Hilarious House of Frankenstein, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're, mostly this podcast is about writing. And I, I, my understanding of the way Frankenstein worked is that it's a very unique way that the way the show was done. Uh, and how would the writing, like how... how how did you guys put the shows together? Was it like done all, hey, here's a big load of uh, writing down? Or, hey, we're five minutes before shooting time, uh, we need some stuff?
1: Well, it was a combination of that, Bill. Um, I'll tell you how, what happened. Uh, originally, we we didn't have a huge budget for the show. I mean, it was it was a huge budget back in 1970, 71, especially in, in that market. I mean, the... the Hamilton market is a fairly small market now their signal did spread out all over the the Golden Horseshoe, which is sort of you know Niagara Falls uh, to Toronto but it still wasn't a huge television market back in those days and the and the just say the budget was uh, proportionately the same not a huge budget so we knew we weren't going to be able to go to New York or Los Angeles or wherever and hire some real heavy duty big time writers. So what we decided to do was we went to a school we have here in Toronto called Ryerson, Techn- uh, Ryerson uh, Polytechnical. Polytechnical, thank you. Yeah. And they had a radio and TV arts course, a good one actually. So we went and, and spoke to some of the professors there and bottom line was he gave us the name of a dozen of his students that he thought would be good for us to talk to and we did talk to them we gave them an opportunity to come and join the writing team they were thrilled of course because they'd never really done anything other than attend this two or three year course and um, that's the way it started now we we augmented those students with a, a couple of friends of mine and um, a couple of semi-professionals who decided to use another name because they were union and this wasn't a union shoot. Altogether, we could have started a rock band called Motley Crew, but we didn't. We we, we wrote we wrote 130-hour-long episodes of *Friedenstein*. Now that seemed like a good idea at the time, and the way that worked was we we gave we, we put them into pairs. And for example, we had two people in one room writing all the librarian bits, we put two people in another room writing all the Griselda the Witch bits and and like that. And then after they would write their day's worth of of, uh, quota, if you will, they would submit it to me. I would then vet it, and and if I thought it was funny enough, I'd put it in the tray to go out to the set in the cue cards, and if I didn't think it was funny enough, I would put it in the return tray, and they would come and pick it up and see what they could do to remedy the issue. Then it, then, then, they, the stuff that I had approved, got to the set, they started shooting, and nothing that we tried initially worked out too well. As an example, uh, makeup, we, we thought we would just use a couple of masks. So there was one of the characters, you as I'm sure you recall, called the Librarian and we bought one of them $5 old man wrinkled up face masks, put it on Billy, got about five minutes into the shoot, and realized this is not going to work. The face wouldn't articulate, obviously. It was just a rubber mask. He was sweating to death after five minutes under all the lights with the mask on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we had to make new plans for makeup and just cue me on that, and I'll be glad to go back into that story. When it came to the writing, the cue card guys put and all the stuff that I had approved on the cue cards. We started to roll, and we realized about, again, didn't take very long, five, ten minutes into the shoot, that this stuff just wasn't really working. It just wasn't funny enough. So Billy would start to ad-lib, and, and we realized, again, almost immediately, that, the, that just taking the framework of the stuff that the writers had written and then ad-libbing around it, Was as a friend of mine, say the expression is, it was good enough, especially since the whole concept in the beginning was that obviously we were doing this as a pseudo horror kids TV show, the keyword being kids. And we thought the best way to appeal to kids was to uh, incorporate lots of what we call in the industry sight gags, which means you just look at it and it's funny. And um, that begs another story about how we decided we would. Who we would use to be the count originally, Billy was not our first choice. But back to the writing, um, we, we we decided we would be able to move forward using just the framework of all the written material. Billy would ad lib the rest on set. Igor, uh, a guy named Fishka Rays, who played Igor, would would take his cues from Billy and and go along with the ad libbing. And. Um, once again, the rest is history. That's the way the show went, and that's the show, the way the show ended up. Um, to go back, can I just go back to the makeup for a minute?
0: Absolutely. Go back to makeup. Then oh. I was going to go on to something quick.
1: Okay. Uh, you want to do your quick first? Or no, go makeup with makeup.
0: First? You've got the run, uh, steam going on. You might as well go with that.
1: Okay. Um, as I said, we, we, the, the, the masks weren't going to work. We, we then looked around to find someone who could do great makeup. And I'm not, I'm not belittling the makeup people in Canada, but they just. We just looked. We looked all over the place. We looked at the the network, the national network, which was the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. We looked at CTV. We, we just looked everywhere. We looked into theater makeup artists. And we could find people that could do makeup, but they couldn't do the kind of stuff we were looking for. We were looking for something absolutely incredible. If we couldn't do it with a $5 mask, we were going to go to the other extreme. So we got in touch with a guy named Bob Layton, who's a a real big-time heavy-duty makeup guy in the U.S. And he was working uh, at the time out of NBC in New York City. So we decided we were going to go to New York and and get him to make prosthetic pieces for all the characters. So we had to decide who was going to go to New York. Obviously Billy was going to have to go because the way you make prosthetic pieces is they make a mold of your own face and then they make the the prosthetic pieces from that mold. And um, time was of the essence because we were already into production at that point. So we had no choice but to fly to New York flying not my favorite choice of travel. I prefer, much prefer to be on the ground and drive or take a train, but there wasn't much time for that, and it was clear that I was the one who was going to have to go. We drew straws. My brother and I uh, drew the straws, and I was the younger brother then by seven years. I still am, actually, so it was clear I was going to make the trip to New York with Billy. So, We went to the airport, got an airplane, flew to New York. I just assumed someone was going to be at the other end to pick us up, a limousine or a taxi or whatever. And I thought I'd see somebody with a card holding it up in the air saying, Markowitz, and that's how we would get to 40 Rock, which is where NBC's uh, offices and studios are in Manhattan. Well, there was somebody with a card, and he escorted us out of the airport. But he didn't take us to a limousine, He didn't take us to a, a waiting taxi he took us to another launching pad if you will uh, just beside the airport and he pointed to a helicopter and i said oh my god like i had i'd been in a helicopter before but it definitely was was far from my favorite form of transportation anyway i it appeared i had no choice i got tricked into this because obviously my brother had made the reservation or, or, or uh, appointment with this helicopter without telling me, got in the helicopter, we got up in the air, we're headed for Manhattan. And as we're traveling to Manhattan, and I'm shaking in my boots, the thought occurred to me, because I'd been to New York before that, that we have to land this helicopter. And I don't know if you know New York or not, but it would be physically impossible to land a helicopter in Manhattan on the ground at any time of the day or night. Even even at 3 in the morning, there's so many people in Manhattan and so many cars and taxis, it would just be a physical impossibility. So I, I was just kind of wondering what's going to happen next, and of course what happened next was the helicopter proceeded to descend and descend and descend, and he landed on the roof of, of NBC's building uh, in Rockefeller Center. So we got out of the helicopter, I immediately went and, and changed my pants. And uh, we proceeded to go downstairs, met with Bob, he made the mold of Billy's face. We got this time into a limousine and and got back out to the airport and came home. And about, oh, I don't know, two weeks later, the prosthetic pieces arrived via courier. And um, once again, to use that expression, the rest is history. the the characters looked absolutely terrific. I mean, if there was anything we did on that show that was professional times ten, it was the look of the show. The prosthetic pieces, like, for example, on the librarian, or Griselda, on all of them, there was a prosthetic nose, prosthetic cheeks, prosthetic chin, prosthetic forehead. So there was almost nothing left of the real Billy Van from the shoulders up. But it, it worked. It, it had an absolutely terrific look. And if you haven't already mentioned, I think you have, as a matter of fact. Anybody who wants to to see the show and, and uh, they can see exactly what I'm talking about, about all the prosthetic pieces, It's it, there's lots of it on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and put in Hilarious Husser and there are full episodes available.
0: Yeah, and, and comparing today's world versus the world in the 70s, Prosthetics and um, makeup application components was not a big thing back then, especially not for a show like this on a local television channel.
1: Oh, it was unheard of. Yeah. yeah. It was very, First of all, it was very expensive, and it wasn't available in this country, so that added to the cost. I mean, you had to get to New York, and you had to... You know, the most normal people would have gotten to New York and perhaps stayed over and had lunch and maybe seen a play and then come back or whatever, you know that we did that whole turnaround in about two hours or something. So it was, it was very expensive and it was it was u- unique in its in its own right. But
0: then. it was worth the bang for the buck.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. Terrific look. Ended up with a terrific look.
0: And the only other memory I have about the whole show is it was very trippy. Uh, the dance scenes.
1: Mm, they always like. like
0: I always remember dude dancing. That's it. Doing his little dance. It's like oh my god.
1: Now, believe it or not, Bill, there's a story attached there. <laughs> there's a story attached to every... every I was just going to say, you got stories yeah.
0: attached to, I'm sure, a whole crap ton of stuff in that show.
1: I do. Much more time than you can afford to put into this particular podcast. You'd have to do a, 12 ser- a 12-part twelve series. No, the, the story with that is we did not plan that. <laughs> what we had planned was that the Wolfman... Um, the Wolfman was going... Obviously, it was a, a sort of off from the Wolfman Jack yep. character, a combination of him and the Wolfman from the movies, you know, the old Universal movies. And, and there was a Wolfman long before Universal movies. Yes. There were always sort of, uh, not stories, but legends of a man who would drink some special potion and, and hair would grow all over his face and his hands and he would turn into a wolf. And um, So ours certainly, we didn't uh, invent the Wolfman. But we just thought there would be a Wolfman, he would be a DJ, it would, like I said, be a knockoff on Wolfman Jack, and he'd intro a, a song and we'd play the song. The, the show, by the way, as I, I think you know, but maybe your listeners don't, we produced the show specifically for CHCH-TV in Hamilton, Ontario. We thought it was going to run there for a year. We, we did a year's worth of shows if it ran every day, Monday through Friday. And then it would die and go to television heaven. And of course, I can tell you now, 45 years later, that's not the way it worked out. CHCH, in order to sort of help get even to the cost of the production, syndicated the show across Canada. It was then uh, syndicated across the United States, playing in all the big markets like the New York market and Chicago market and California markets. and it was then aired uh, abroad. It, it, it played in Norway and Spain and Australia. And and that was not part of the original plan. So the original plan was we were going to have him intro a song and we would play it. What ended up happening was we, we chose the big hits of the day. And those were all sort of Rolling Stone hits and, and uh, Sly and the Family Stone and like that, big, major hits.
0: The groovy tunes
1: the groovy tunes unfortunately we forgot to clear the rights to that music <laughs> and as long as it played at C on chch nobody cared nobody even listened nobody even knew chch existed right when it got syndicated across canada still nobody seemed to care we never heard from one soul As soon as the show got syndicated in the U.S., I mean as soon, like the day it started to play in California and in Los Angeles and in in, uh, New York, um, we immediately got hit with cease-and-desist orders from major law firms across the country saying that someone had forgotten to pay for the rights to that music. So when it, uh, what the syndicator there did was he just stripped out that music and inserted different music that that was affordable because you, you, nobody could afford to pay for the Rolling Stones' rights back then. Right. So um, so we're back to here. Now, as we're, we're shooting that episode, those episodes, the Wolfman episodes, when we're on the set, the cameraman... By accident, I'm sure everybody in your audience has been to a a dance or something like that, a show, a live show, where there's a band on stage, and the singer stands in front of the speakers on the stage with his microphone, and they hear that horrible sound. It's called feedback when, when the mic feeds back into the speaker, like a screeching sound. Well, the cameraman on the set... We, we were using those huge old cameras back then, and the camera just tilts down if you don't lock it in place. So we stopped to take a cigarette or whatever, and the uh, camera tilted down, and it aimed itself at one of the monitors on the set, and it started to feed back. And what you ended up seeing on on the screen, what the Wolfman and, and uh, Igor were dancing in front of, was the result of an accident. It was the result of seeing that once... Thing, that thing started to feed back and then back again and back again and back again. It got all distorted and messed up and screwed up. And, and then we altered it a little tiny bit. And what we created was a, a, a very early version of psychedelia, if you will. And, and uh, once again, if you were go to the show and watch the show, or just go and take a shortcut, just go to Frankenstein Wolfman segment on YouTube and you'll see the Wolfman and the Count's assistant, Igor, dancing with this psychedelic background behind them, and that was an evolution of an accident.
0: See, and that tends to be the thing that I always find the most amusing thing about most shows is when the accident stuff comes out and becomes, that's the thing we're keeping. Because I always remember that psychedelic, they're dancing and they got that whole trippy mirror image thing going on in the background, and it's like, dudes, that's cool. (laughs) <laughs> and not knowing that that was on purpose is always awesome. There so, you go. Cool. That's actually pretty cool. Um, but now you do a convention running, right? I mean, you go to a bunch of conventions as well.
1: I'm, I'm I work the that circuit constantly. I, I do comic cons and and uh, uh, festivals and all kind of live events, as as diverse as. Um, Car shows. Sometimes they have big end-of-season car shows. You know, big classic and custom car and hot rod car shows where they get 1,500, 2,000 cars on display. Well, I've done a number of those where I, I go and I appear and meet and, and greet and chat with our fans and sign autographs and pose for selfies with people. And uh, I have a big poster that I have behind me when I do those appearances, and it's got a picture of Vincent Price and, and the other cast members on it. And inevitably, people walk by, and I, I never get recognized as the super hippie character because I look so different on the show. I weighed about 120 pounds back then, where I'm up to around 155 now. And I, I wore a skin-tight Superman outfit and a big blonde Afro wig. So I don't get recognized. But people walk by, they see the poster, and inevitably, everyone says exactly the same thing. They respond, they say out loud to either themselves or whoever they're walking with, Oh, my God! I grew up watching that show, and of course, they approach the table and uh, and then it goes from there, and like i said i I meet him and I greet him and I talk to them and unlike most celebrities where they do that whole process in about eight seconds, they sign an autograph, take their forty fifty sixty eighty dollars, whatever it was they charge for the autograph, and next, I like to sit and chat with all the fans and then find out where they watch the show and who was their favorite character and uh, Unlike every other celebrity I've ever worked with, I don't charge for the poster. I, I pay for them out of my own pocket, and I don't charge for the signature, and I don't charge for the uh, the photograph together. But yes, I do those shows, both sides of the border, constantly. Did you do Fan Expo this year? Not this year. I was on the road in the U.S. Um, I have done Fan Expo a few times, um, and I'm going to be... Fan Expo has another show coming up on... Um, December 10th here in Toronto and I'm going to be doing that when it's at the Metropolitan Toronto Convention Centre.
0: Is that the one they call Festivus? Yes. Yeah, we're going to have a team there as well.
1: Oh, well, let's get together.
0: Oh, uh, I won't be there, but our team will be there.
1: Okay, well, I'll get together with your team. Actually, I've worked with your team a number of times. Excellent. Yeah.
0: It's always good to have everybody work. See, that's what I, I one of the things I really like about this kind of business and, uh, writing in general, writers in general, we tend to pretty much get along for the most part and just, Hey, how's it going? Yeah, it's going good. Okay, great. Now we'll get this stuff going.
1: Yeah. Well, because we have something in common. That's uh, So it, it's, 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 there's a common bond there. And then, you know, you, you feel that bond.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also because we're Canadian.
1: Hey, Hey, Take off, eh? <laughs>
0: no, actually, I never take off, eh? Uh, but yeah, no, I always, I'm always amused when people say, "Yo, you're a Canadian, right?" You say "a" a lot. It's like I almost never say "a." Really? Yeah.
1: Um, I'm not sure if I do or not to tell you this. I Certainly, I don't do it consciously, but uh, I, I could be guilty of that.
0: I can tell and, you and, that in the 35 minutes I've listened to you talk while we're discussing, I have not heard you say "a" except when we started joking about it.
1: Oh, well, I, you know, I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have to do a sound check on myself from now on.
0: <laughs> it's all good. Nobody really worries about it that much. Um, I just wanted to mention one more thing. Actually, I was going to mention one thing and then ask you about one more thing. Uh, for sure. people who are not familiar with the show, the show is very vignette styled.
1: So it's like- By the way, before, before we leave, if you have time, I should really tell you about how we ended up using Billy Van as the Count and, and who we originally selected be the count but go ahead uh, go ahead with
0: yours okay well yeah no i was going to say that the show is uh the whole uh, i don't know if uh, if that's how it started or just sort of uh organically grew that way but it's all a bunch of bits like it's not a single story it's not a whole hey and then they're going and they raced and saved the president from the bomb that was going to blow up and all the politicians and everybody who was in the crowd they all survived it was all a bunch of these bits
1: right yes And the reason, was there there a question attached to that, or was was that a question?
0: Well, that was a statement, but the question was going to be, is like, and that that sort of thing, I mean, did it play like, like I read comic books a lot, so I mean, was it being designed to be like an ongoing thing for each of the characters as their different bits were going on, or was it just sort of, that worked, let's do that?
1: Well, it it, it, it was a strategic plan, and, and the reason there had to be a strategic plan, because was because the workload, if you will, producing 130 hour-long episodes would have taken us the rest of our lives if we, if we did, if we shot each show as a show. I mean, I can't even imagine how you would do that because you'd have to, especially since one guy played like a dozen characters, like you'd have to stop. It would have been impossible. So the only way we figured we could do this and make it manageable and affordable was to do it in, in segments. So for example, we would take the librarian bits and we, one day we would do from sort of, you know 9 in the morning until midnight all day, we would do librarian bits. So we'd end up with, let's say, 20 or 30 bits that we had done that day. That way there was no, no makeup changes, no wardrobe changes, no set changes, no nothing. All, we, all he would do is have a, a, maybe a different book in his, in his hand each day, And um, that was it. So we were able to – we took a cue from Henry Ford, who, as everyone knows, I guess, was the creator of the uh, Ford Motor Company. And he was, to a large extent, credited with inventing the production line. Uh, Before that, there were other car manufacturers, but they would build uh, one car and then build another car. Whereas he would have a production line where one person would add that bolt, one would do that wheel, like like that, so he could knock off 30 cars in a day or whatever, compared to another guy who would take a week to build a car, one car. And um, that was the good news for us, because we got to produce them like a factory, if you will. The bad news was for the person who had to edit them, because when we were all finished doing the pre-production and the production, we had a a gal named Nancy Press who was responsible for the editing, and she got locked into an editing room with an editor, and uh, it took her, I don't know, a good maybe two months of taking all the the product we had given her and cutting it and putting it all together, so she ended up with A Librarian, A Griselda uh, Dr. Dr. Petvet, a uh, Bowana Clyde, a gorilla bit, two super hippies, and a partridge in a pear tree, edit them all together and create a show. And, that, and that's the way she created 130 shows. When she was finished that, that assignment, she went directly to an institute, an institution, I should say, and I don't think she was released for years after that. I mean, that was enough to send anybody to a, uh, an asylum. It was, it was probably the worst job in the entire world to get locked up in this little you know, 12-foot square editing room with another human being and no daylight, and your food gets passed under the door to you. And, and that, was your, uh, that was your job. So that, that's the way we did it, and that was the only way it could possibly have been done in that, that Herculean uh, effort in such a, a short period of time.
0: And back then, we're talking equipment, oh, not computers, Beta, Betamax and stuff?
1: Before Betamax.
0: Before Betamax. What the heck was was, before Betamax?
1: It was great, big, huge, wide reels of videotape.
0: Oh, it's the, uh, what the hell do they call it, quarter something or whatever?
1: No, it it, it was like three inch or two, I forget whether it was two inch or three inch wide uh, videotape. So it it was it was it was the way dinosaurs used to produce television. Right, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. It was the next step after only live was it was was had been created. I mean, that was the origination of television, where they just shot it live, it went out on the air, and that was that. The next step was this this form of videotape.
0: And was and it a lot of uh, cutting and splicing and manually taping pieces together?
1: For her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what she did all day and all night for, for you know a couple months. Yeah, that was that, her life.
0: Where, where the expression uh, "lost on the cutting room floor" comes from?
1: Oh my God, uh, you probably could have filled I don't know a, a dozen of those huge metal bins that they used to collect garbage in um, with, with what was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, nice. It was, I, I can't imagine having to do that job. Actually, I can't imagine even having to do the job I did do. You know, People ask me at these shows, what was your favorite part of the show? And I think about it for a minute, and I I have basically the same answer for everybody. There was no favorite part. It it, it just wasn't fun. Producing 130-hour-long episodes of that show was the hardest job I'd ever had up to that point and since that point. Now, the good part was the 45-odd years since then. And enjoying all the the bragging rights and and the accolades and meeting all the fans and things like that. But that nine month period was like living hell.
0: Well, think about it this way: one hundred and thirty one episodes is like seven years of Game of Thrones.
1: <laughs> so there you go, fully <laughs> on you guys. Equation. Oh
0: yeah. yeah, it's it's like modern yeah. TV is like the old days. Uh, shows would run, and you'd have these massive long uh, running periods. Nowadays. You're happy to get a show that runs 10 episodes.
1: You're right. If, so. if you have time, do you have time to tell you the story about how we started with the sight gags?
0: Uh, well, you wanted to say something about Billy first, and then we can do yeah, that, that quickly. that's, and then we that's can what go. this is about. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah, our original concept was right from the beginning of the show, we were going to start off with a sight gag, and the easiest way we thought we would do that, because we knew we wanted to make this sort of pseudo-horror thing based around... Uh, the original, even if Bram Stoker's original vampire was the original, I don't think it was, and the story started a million years ago, um, we thought the best sight gag could be is if we got the smallest person we could find in the entire world to play <laughs> the count. And in those days, it, it was politically correct to refer to that person as a, a midget or a dwarf. These days, that person would be referred to as a little person. And it's so funny, you know, because we looked so hard to find the right person, and it was an almost impossible feat. Now I I wake up in the morning, and for some reason my television or my cable company defaults. So as soon as I turn on my TV, it defaults to a station. I forget what station it is, what channel it is. And that, that little person series, TV series comes on the air whenever I get up, which is usually you know between sort of 8 and 9, 9.30 in the morning. Um, and there are, there's an abundance of those little people that they could have selected from. We searched high and, and, and far. We, we looked all across Canada. We looked in the U.S. We looked everywhere, and we could not find a little person that we thought was suitable for this show. So we eventually came back to Toronto and, and gave it one more try, and we came up with a fellow who was originally born in Winnipeg, which is uh, one of the—in the middle of, of the country, I guess you could say, further west in the middle of the country, and um, his name was Guy Big. Now, I don't think he was born with that name, but that, that was his name at the time. So we found Guy Big, and he seemed to fit the role perfectly. He was 31 inches tall and and uh, was, uh, you know, a, a nice enough guy. So we hired him on the spot as soon as we found him. We had already found the biggest person we could find to play Igor, his assistant, uh, and there, that was supposed to be the side gag. And the guy we hired for that, a guy named Fishka Rays, was originally from South Africa, he still had a strong South African accent, and we thought, uh, what the hell, for five-year-old kids, they won't know the difference between a a, a Frankenstone slash Transylvanian accent and a South African accent. So we hired him on the spot. Now the plan was, we, we they were going to both come out to the house and, and run through the lines with me right after we hired them, and they both lived in downtown Toronto, and Fishka the guy who was hired to play Igor at that time he drove an old beat up Volkswagen Beetle and guy Big didn't drive at all so they arranged to meet each other downtown they were going to drive out together which they did somehow that old beat up Volkswagen made it up the incline on the driveway and up to the the pathway to the house and Fishka Somehow managed to squeeze himself out from behind the steering wheel because he was huge. He weighed 350 pounds. He was about six foot four high, tall. And there was hardly room between the back of his seat and the steering wheel. So he squeezed himself out of the Volkswagen. Guy Big, on the other hand, was sitting in the passenger seat. He would open the door and have to jump all the way down to the pavement, down to the, the driveway, because he certainly couldn't stretch his legs that far. And then the two of them would walk up to the front door. And uh, they came in, went and sat down, started to run through their lines. And I realized almost immediately that Fisker was going to be fine. He had done a little bit in the industry. He had done a little bit of stand-up comedy. I think he sang a little bit. And um, he was going to be fine. I knew that. When it came to reading Guy Biggs' lines, I'd I'd give him a line to read, like, uh, Igor Get the Door. And he had a little, tiny, tiny voice to match his little, tiny, tiny body. So he would read the line back to me and say, Igor, get the door. And I thought, oh, my God. Like, how are you going to mic a situation like that? Because that was long before we had those little transistor mics that you, uh, you clipped to your shirt or something. They, we used a big boom microphone. And the problem with the boom is if it was at the right level to catch Igor, it was never going to pick up Guy Big. So we'd have to bring it, drop it right down into the shot. It was lo- all kind of difficulties but we could have somehow overcome that. But the way he gave me the line back was, Igor, get the door. And I'd say, no, guy, we have to try that again. And he tried again. It was still, Igor, get the door. So I'd go for a few minutes like that, and then I'd say, no, no, try it like this. Igor, get the door. You know, you have to sound like a count. So anyway, we did this for two or three days, maybe four days, until I realized this is not going to work. He was a really nice guy, Guy Big was, and he was uh, amenable to doing almost anything I asked, trying anything I asked him to try. But I realized almost immediately after, you know, like I said, a few days, that he did not have a funny bone in his body, and it wasn't going to work. So I had a meeting with Riff, and we concluded that we were going to have to fire him. Again, we drew straws once again. I was still the younger brother. I lost. And we had put him up in a motel around the corner from CHCH in, in Hamilton. So I, I, I didn't want to go under any conditions. I didn't want to go into Hamilton alone and then lower the boom. My brother refused to go with me. So I finally enlisted my best friend to come along for the ride. We drove out there. We met him in the bar in the motel. Thank God he was already up, sitting up on a bar stool, because I didn't want to have to go through, you know, finding a way to get him up there. And I, I, I couldn't think of any other way other than just shooting from the hip, so I told them that it just wasn't going to work out. It was our fault, certainly not your fault, meaning his fault. We should have uh, done our due diligence. We should have gone out and sought out a comedian for this role. Regardless of how tall or small he was, a comedian was the, the prere- should have been our prerequisite. So it wasn't your fault. What we're going to do is we're going to let you keep the tuxedo we made for you to play the role, we're going to pay you what we had agreed to pay you, and we'll find you another role on the show. It just won't be the count. And he took it like a man, jumped off the bar stool and, and marched away. I, I believe that my mission was accomplished, Got back in the car and go back to Toronto. We then started to search for who we were going to use, and I'll cut this story short by telling you, after going through a few people and talking to them and thinking about it, we decided to try Billy Van. My brother was doing another show at the time, a charade show that ran every day on CHCH, same station. was called Party Game, And one of the stars of that show was Billy Van. So he was right in front of our face, obviously. We should have of him first, but uh, we we got him in, had a meeting with him, talked to him. He was, sure, man, I'd love to do it. And uh, we hired him and said, okay, you're the count. That's all we hired him for. But then every time we would come up with another idea for another character, We would just off, you know, off cuff, throw it past him and say, you know what, Billy? We've decided to uh, take off on the Wolfman Jack. We're going to do a Wolfman character. And Billy would turn around for about 30 seconds, then he'd turn back to us and he would say something like, I am the Wolfman. He would just automatically morph himself into the character. And he just, like I, I said early on in this interview, he had an insatiable appetite for work, and he just kept you know, kept saying, we told him we're going to do a, a witch, and he'd say, I'll do it, man. Let me try it. Let me do it, man. We'd say, we're going to do another character called uh, Dr. Petfett. I can do that, man. Let me try it. And then slowly but surely, the way it evolved, he did almost every character on the show, and there were lots of characters, as you can attest to, except the super hippie character and, and Igor, and Vincent uh, Price who we hired to come in and be the sort of interlocutor. He did the intro to the show, the extra, and then introduced all of the other segments. And we made Guy Dig the mini count and we'd give him cameos to do where he'd come walking out of a, a phone booth or fall over into a platform or whatever. I mean we used him as much as we could and it was very effective to have a mini me, maxi me. As a matter of fact, not that long ago, Mike Myers, the famous worldwide for his acting and his comedy and his producing. He was awarded the key to Toronto, and he told the mayor and the assembled audience when he was given the key, and this was very nice of him, he didn't have to do this, he's a huge star, but he told the assembled crowd that when he was a kid, he'd come home after school. Frightened Slang ran at that point from 3.30 to 4.30, I think it was, and his mom would give him a plate of cookies and a glass of milk, and he'd sit and watch our show for an hour. And then when he grew up and produced his Austin Powers movies, which I'm sure everybody in the world has seen, that's where he got his mini-me and maxi-me idea from growing up watching Larry's House of Frankenstein.
0: That is some groovy stuff. And by the way, just so you know, I was uh, just casually searching on the web right now for pictures of Billy Van, and I found you in the superhero outfit with the blonde afro wig. Well, there you go. Nifty. There you go. So yeah. on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, okay. Mitch, it's been great having you on the uh, podcast. Appreciate it well, tremendously.
1: My, it's been my pleasure, Bill. You you were a really um, a, a terrific host to to work with. You had done your homework. You knew what to ask, and the best part is you're a fan. And and those are always the best interviews when you're doing with somebody on the other end of the telephone or the other side of the microphone who watched the show and appreciated the show. It it makes it so much easier to do an interview. So thank you.
0: As I said earlier before we started, it was some hilarious stuff, man.
1: I grew up and loved that stuff. You know what, Doug? you made my day.
0: And to find out more about Mitch Markowitz, you can check him out at www.superhippie.com and you can also follow him on Twitter at IMTVSSuperhippie. As always, you can also find out more about the Great Lakes Horror Company and the HWA Ontario chapter at our respective Facebook pages and Twitter feeds. See you all on the Upside Down, and keep your fingers and toes attached.
2: Doesn't seem to work. All right, we'll use it for a pen later. Wait a minute. Now
1: I know what we need.
2: My great-grandfather must know. He has his diary. Now I want you to get it, for it will have the secret within. Here's how you do it. This time, go out the front gate. What's... Then you go over the moor. Go 400... 400 yards. Then you turn to your right. Go 300... Then you go 300 yards. There, you will find... Out. No, 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 no. I will tell you when you go. There you will find a tree right in front of you. Do not walk into that tree. Turn to your left. Then you go west 800 yards. And there you will find an X. Yes, master. That's not it. There you will go east for 300 yards. Then you will find my grandfather's great diary of laughter. Go. I'm too tired now to read it. You read it for me. Oh, laughter. It says here you should tell Bruce a joke and then you'll make him laugh, and that's what we will do. We'll do it. You tell him a joke. I will think of a wonderful joke. Right. All right, here it is. Ha! 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 Why did the chicken cross the road? Two, because he had suspenders. <laughs>
1: no, wrong. Thank you for listening to the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast, and be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at GL Horror Podcast. To close the show today, we have another horrific comedy segment with Monster Matt as he breaks down the terrifying world of politics. And could anything be scarier than politics? Good
2: cool morning maniacs! <laughs> yes, that's right. It is I, your fiend, yours truly, Monster Matt Patterson, the man of a thousand bad monster jokes hailing all the way from Matsylvania. Hello, Toronto, Canada. Ha <laughs> ha! You thought you could keep me away, didn't you? Ha <laughs> ha! Tisk tisk! Shame on you! I know the entry code. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, <laughs> hey maniacs, we uh, we've got a lot to talk about, uh, including some politicking. Not sure why that's such a big deal all of a sudden, but um, it's kind of on everyone's mind. So with that, uh, I give you this, Rodan has a left-wing and a right-wing agenda. Flying! (laughs) See, because he's... Oh, forget it. All right. The uh, mummy is wrapped up in politics. Yeah, he's very bipartisan. (laughs) See what I did there? (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's always a battle between the two houses of power. The House of Dracula and the House of Frankenstein. (laughs) Oh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde want to know if they get separate votes. Think about it, would you? All right, the uh, Triffids, those leafy fiends, they will make up all branches of government. (laughs) Oh, he's on a roll. Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees love Dismembers of the Senate. (laughs) Oh yeah, baby. Let's try this one. Only one giant ape is needed for Congress. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you went ape over that one, didn't you? (laughs) All right. Uh, Dracula is the Secretary of State. <laughs> oh, that one had some bite, didn't it? Mm-hmm. The cabinet positions will be chosen by who else? Doctor Caligari. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. The Invisible Man's political moves are totally see-through. Duh. <laughs> oh, who writes this crap, huh? Uh, never mind. Uh, who? Yeah. Blah, blah. You have to say Kalatu Barada Nikto if you're the Supreme Gort. Hey, 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 and your final punishment, (laughs) bet you couldn't wait for this. The Incredible Shrinking Man is in favor of smaller government. And there you have it, you maniacs, you, you Canadian maniacs. Is that better or worse? I have no idea. But you're all in very much love with me. I mean, I love you very much. Jeez, I'm going to get in trouble. All right, Maniacs. Until next time, remember, Ouija board wishes and cadaver dreams. Bye-bye.